James Crute. Good morning to you. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good, thanks. We've been topping everyone's reading up. Let's top up their viewing. Interested in your take? It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating series, True Detective. It pulls some truly big names uh, in, in the acting world, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Of course, it started it's almost a decade now. In fact, it might be just about over a decade when Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey teamed up for the first season. Um, we're on to the fourth season. This is probably the first one in about five years. But television debut or first television series or appearance in like 50 years for one Jodie Foster. So what a get. Um, she plays one of the two detectives um, in this fictional town of Ennis, Alaska, who are investigating the disappearance of eight research scientists. Um, and it turns out it's tied to another case from the past. It brings her back into the orbit of um, a detective by the name of Evangeline Navarro, who uh, is uh, a local, if you like, played by the boxer turned actor Carly Reyes. And it's it's really the dynamic between those two, as much as the mystery itself, that, that really gives this one heck of a punch. I've uh, been lucky enough to watch watch all of it, um, and um, it, it's fantastic. It's gripping from start to finish, and they just make such a great use of um, the, the location. Now, if people might remember that the first True Detective was this sort of desert, um, you know, really hot, hot conditions, that kind of thing. This very much is snow, and, and as the title uh, suggests, night country, um, basically a place of permanent night. It's, it's yeah. Gripping. Um, it was was that the Woody Harrelson Matthew McConaughey series, the first one. Yes, that's With right. The weirdo yeah. cop. <laughs> well, I mean, they're essentially weirdo. They're cops, all weirdo yeah. cops at some point. I okay. mean, Jodie Foster's character is probably more akin to Kate Winslet's character in Mirror of East Town. But if you can imagine, you know, a small town that's even more isolated, a place where it's like permanently dark. Yeah. The one thing you have to remember here, Alaska didn't really work for how they were going to film it, so they actually ended up filming this in Iceland. Mm. Um, which is which it was going to be know, too cold otherwise i think or well apparently they couldn't find anywhere where they could uh, get roads that would be suitable to uh, to, set to get up all the crap in. okay yeah. um look one thing about this i had a bit of a fargo moment with her too as well because she's quite quick-witted she's not clarice starling that's for sure um yeah. she, it, she's quite quick-witted and quirky and everything else but what i found and maybe this is my problem um I find myself watching the cricket highlights all the time now instead of the whole match, right? We just speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. And I started watching it, and I found it reasonably slow moving. And maybe, as I said, that is my problem. Um, Having watched the whole thing, does it it pick up pace, or do you just get into it more, or do I just need to pull my head in and get some patience? Well, yeah, that's that's a good thing that you say, because, of course, the first series was at a time before binge-watching, you know, before when we could watch five or six at once, you know. This is going to be a slow burn week to week, essentially. Um, And maybe people just need to wait five or six weeks until they count a binge. I thought the pacing was pretty good, really. Um, I think, you know, more and more of the backstory is sort of revealed, more and more of the tension between the two cops is revealed. Um, But, I mean, the story is propulsive at the same time. You know, it's it's darker and deeper. The one thing you have to remember with the true detective stories is there is a sense of the supernatural about it. You know, they're not straight 
uh, you know, hard-boiled detective stories or straight police procedurals like, say, a line of duty. There is this kind of spiritual or or the sense that the place where it's set is key to to what's going on or or has a has a big role to play. I mean, you know, if you're going to set, set something basically in a place that has no light that's essentially freezing the entire time and there's just snow everywhere. It, it's going to play a factor into the story, and it certainly does here. And I think I think it's a nice counterpoint to the original series, but not wanting to give away any spoilers, there are also perhaps some links to the original story too, just in the sense of the vibe and the theme. Alrighty. So recommending. It's on Neon, uh, True Detective Night's Country. Um, where else are we going to go today? You're going to Disney next, I think, aren't you? Yes. Now, this is a new murder mystery series, but with a very much lighter t- a tone. It's called Death and Other Details. Um, it's more a kind of white lotus sort of idea or something like Knives Out. But mainly, it's a vehicle for the brilliant actor Mandy Patinkin, uh, who, of course, was Inigo Montoya in... Um, the Princess Bride, Saul Berenson in Homeland, um, Hal Wackner for anyone who's seen the brilliant The Good Fight. Um, but yes, he, he t- he's always tended to play sort of characters, but they've usually been sort of peripheral or second bananas, if you like. Here he gets to take centre stage as a, a character who's sort of supposedly inspired by the likes of Poirot, Spade, Sherlock Holmes and Philip Marlowe. But his Rufus Coatsworth is very much a kind of flawed detective. And he arrives on this boat uh, much to the chagrin of a, a young woman who still holds a grudge against him for not solving the case of who killed her mother 20 years ago. And so she she lost faith in this man who, who said, put my trust in, put your trust in me 20 years ago. And um, now she's sort of saying to anyone who will listen on board, you know, don't trust him. And then um, one of the other people on board this chartered boat is killed. And she has to team up with Rufus to try and solve who did it because at the moment she's the prime suspect because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Look, this, this is a tale filled with quirky characters. There are a lot of them. It is very like a kind of death on the Nile where you have to wade your way through about 20 different characters. Um, and I guess that's the usefulness of having an eight-part series is that you can spend that time sort of uh, giving the audience lots of red herrings. But, you know, this is all about Pantinkin's character, and he's quirky and and wild, but but brilliant at the same time. You know, he has a self-important kind of narration, but is his narration very reliable? You know, if you like those kind of lighter murder mysteries that, that, that keep you kind of involved, it's not quite at the heights of, say, a Knives Out, but it's definitely... You know, there's enough to keep you going. Uh, certainly it feels like a, the perfect sort of summer watch. I have to digress because this email has to be referenced. It comes yes. from Gordon. We were talking earlier about um, the autonomous pram <laughs> that turned up at this recent electronics show in uh, Las Vegas. And I made the point that Stephen King needed to get his hands on that. You'll remember Christine, which there's a link. Christine was was a was able to be filmed at the seen at the movies. Gordon's emailed in and suggested perhaps the new one could be called Pramela. <laughs> okay, dad joke to you. I laugh my head off. The holdovers <laughs> is in cinemas. Ah, now if you like dad jokes, look, this is the latest from Alexander Payne. It reunites him with his sideways offsider, if you like, Paul Giamatti. 
Look, if, uh, those who love uh, a period comedy, if you like, they're, they're kind of talky, smart, uh, thing that Hollywood don't really make much of anymore, then this is the one for you. It's set in a New England boys' school in 1971. It's made to look as if it was made in 1971. Uh, Giamatti plays this crusty old history professor who was a student at the school and has now been a professor there, if you like, for the last 20 or 30 years. He's stuck with the four or five kids who can't go home for Christmas for one reason or another, and he really is kind of begrudgingly there, doesn't really, you know, doesn't get on with any of the kids. All the rest of the staff hate him. So it's sort of him, these four or five kids, and the um, cook whose son has just died in the Vietnam War. And it's, it, you know, it, it has a kind of poignancy about it as well. But boy, it's hellishly funny. And boy, Giamatti is a great actor. You know, I think... I really want him to win the Oscar just because it's, he's just the heart and soul of this film. And it's such a, a brilliant sort of performance. It's nuanced. He, he's wildly wacky at the same time, but he's, you know, he's just this well-read kind of history professor who sort of learns things from the, from the others who are there at the same time while he's there. You know, if, if you're looking for the kind of movie that Hollywood doesn't make anymore, this is it. A couple of minutes to go. Uh, a very bold title it is to entitle your documentary <laughs> The Greatest Night in Pop. This is on Netflix. I, I think maybe they should have called it The Greatest Night in American Pop. Look, this is all about the making of We Are the World, the USA for Africa's charity single in 85, which, let's be honest, ripped off Band-Aid. Um, and they even admit that. Harry Belafonte apparently came into... Uh, his manager's office and said, we need to do something for Africa. Why don't we just take what Bob Geldof has done and do our own thing? Um, this is this is makes brilliant use of the incredible footage that they had from this one night where they recorded it. It was after the American Music Awards in January 1985. Lionel Richie had just come off hosting it. He'd been tasked with uh, writing this song along with Michael Jackson, and Stevie Wonder was supposed to, but he, he comes across as a, a bit useless if you're ever supposed to rely on him in this. But, you know, this this is just incredible footage, and, and Richie is a terrific storyteller as well. He's one of the main ones looking back. But, you know, where else did you get Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Diana Ross, all in the same room? Um, you have Waylon Jennings walking out when Stevie Wonder suggested that some of the songs should be sung in Swahili, which was completely inappropriate anyway, because they don't they don't speak Swahili in Ethiopia. But Stevie thought it was a good idea. Um, you know, it's a fascinating tale of of I guess you know, and uh, one of the iconic moments in 1980s music. It has to be said. Um, you know, there's also Cindy Lauper in there. There's an explanation as to how they tried to get Prince, but Prince wasn't having a bar of it. Um, and, and Quincy Jones and even the cameraman and the lighting people who were on there sort of look back and and reminisce, uh, you know, at, at this amazing charity single. Now, the one thing I'll leave you with, guess what song they modelled it on when it came to creating the melody? Got 10 seconds left. Uh, what is it? Rural Britannia. Now that's something else. Um, Definitely. I'm going to have to Who think about that. Come up with that. I'm going to have to do a lot of pondering of that. James, thank you so much. James Crute with what he's been watching.